Blog Talk Radio. There's a direct relationship between having the businesses and being in prison. Go find an, see how many Asians you can find in American prisons. They ain't going to be in there. But 51% of your prison will be black because you don't black don't have any businesses and industries. There's a direct link. Blacks won't practice group economics. Blacks won't practice group politics. If you don't practice, you're setting yourself up. I told that five-story building, you're setting yourself to get wiped out. Understand the nature of race, which is economics. If you, if you build the first floor, it's economic. Build your businesses and your industries. Control buildings and industry, and put that pools in your money. And hold that money. And, it's a, and practice group economics <clears throat> with it. Arab and Asian money bounces 12 to 13 times for at least. Jewish money bounces 18 times. Black folk got to learn how to practice group economics. Black Americans spend every penny they get outside their own community. Then you take the money and the wealth that you get from that first floor and go to the second floor. The second floor is politics. You then take that money on the first floor and you control your politics. Black folk must quit allowing people to tell them to go out and vote. Vote for what? Nobody's going to do anything for black folk in politics. Politics is controlled by money. Major corporations who got the money. That's what controls politics. If you have no money, you have no say-so, you have no benefits coming. So you take your money and you control and you take your money on the first floor, you buy every politician on the second floor. And any politician you can't buy, you rent or lease them to get what you need. Then once you get the second floor under control with the politician with your money, then you go to the third floor. The third floor is then is the police department and the court system. You take your money from the first floor and your politics on the second floor and you control the court system and the police department. Then the fourth floor, the fourth floor then is media. You then take the money that you generate off the first floor from business and industries, <clears throat> and you go after radio stations, TV stations, newspapers, and cable systems so that you can now inform and communicate with your own people. Right now, <clears throat> black folk only control less than 35 thousandths of 1% of the media in the United States. Out of 12,000 radio stations, black folk own about something like about 75 or 80. That's all. You own no cable systems. You don't have a daily newspaper. You have nothing of importance. You don't. You got about one black TV station. And you, so you can't communicate with your people. You can't inform your people. You can't do anything. You can have Rush Limbaugh and all the rest of the guys talking about racism all day long and bad-mouthing you. And O'Reilly, they can talk, call black folk all kind of names all day long. What are you going to do? You can't respond. You can't communicate with your own people because you, you don't have an economic base. 51% of all the prisoners in the United States are black people. You know, even though you only make up 12% of the population. That's no accident. It's because you don't control the economics and the politics. And they're going to go after the weakest people they can get their hands on to incarcerate them. That's the black folk. And what are you going to do in response to them when they, when they, when they over-incarcerate you? You're going to go out and have a march, a demonstration. We're going to march. March for what? Who cares? Marches they never changed anything.
And it's time for another installment of It's My House. Today's podcast is titled The Female Solution to Reparations. The Female Solutions to Reparations. Live stream number 619-768-2945. Once again, 619-768-2945. Now, 
all through this podcast, we're going to be giving out clues, I would say major clues, to what I consider the female solution to reparations. But I have a question to ask, and I, I want you guys to answer it, and you can chime in on the press one when you're ready. But not yet, because I got I to gotta lay the backdrop. That's why we played the song High Society to start. Um, on our blog talk page, uh, in the scrolling marquee, I've got 12 black women. All of them are African-American. No, no. Let's see. Ten of them are African-American. Uh, and one is from, I think, Liberia or Sierra Leone. I think, yeah, Liberia. And one is from Brazil. All right. Now, we're going to lay some of, well, you're going to hear a couple of audios because the, the, the main question I want to ask is, do African-American women or should African-American women, rather, get reparations? Now, the title of the show is The Female Solution to Reparations. The 12 women that we're going to feature on and off throughout the, the podcast, we have uh, Naomi Latif that will be calling in uh, and some other people, and, of course, our regulars, you can call in and commentate um, and give your opinion. But so I don't want you to get that confused. So on the scrolling marquee on Blog Talk and through the audios that we, I hope we can get on 12 minutes, they're going to be representat- uh, representative of what I think the female solution to reparations is. But the question I have to ask, do African-American women or, or should African-American women get reparations? Yesterday, I brought up should white folks get reparations? And I, I did a whole backdrop on that with with how white folks were in really the original slaves here in the United, or what we call the United States today. But today we're talking about African-American women. Should they get reparations? Now, that's different from the female solution to reparations. Now, one of the 12 people on the scrolling marquee, we had to go down to Brazil. Chica da Silva, C-H-I-C-A, sometimes spelled with an X. But Chica da Silva was a slave, African slave, and she is known today as the slave who became a queen. So if you go online, we don't have any audio for it. I mean, there's dramatizations of it and all that. But I want people to become aware of that. All through the Western Hemisphere, you have had women, black women, historically, because we only have maybe two contemporary black women on this list. The majority of the people that we're going to be featuring today, let's see, out of the 12, at least four of them, if not five, started life legally as a slave. So anyway, Chica da Silva 
was an African slave. She went from slave to becoming a wealthy woman as well as a powerful woman in Brazil. And like I say, today she's commonly known as the slave who became a queen. She could have silver, and it's C-H-I-C-A-D-A-S-I-L-V-A. Look it up when you can, but she's the first one. I wanted to get through that quick. Now, before we get into our other, um, what I call female solution, uh, women that I consider the female solution to reparations, let me paint a little bit more of the backdrop. All right, and you you can chime on this uh, as we open up our phone lines here. But I, I need to lay some foundation first. Once on this podcast, do African-American women or should African-American women get reparations? The next audio I want to go to, where is it? We're going to Brooklyn. We went to Brooklyn last week, well, or maybe at the beginning of this week. We're going to the the debacle that happened up in Brooklyn, New York. Let's play that because that's part of our backdrop. Protests turning heated. As police escort out the owners of Happy Red Apple Nails. The neighborhood demanding the business close down because of this. A botched eyebrow job turned all-out brawl. They were spraying the acid on her like it was holy water. A now viral Facebook video appears to show salon employees beating the customers with broomsticks. I was outraged, stunned, shocked, and appalled. The family of 21-year-old Christina Thomas and her grandmother, 58-year-old Thelma Melody, says the women paid for pedicures. But Thomas then refused to pay for an eyebrow waxing she didn't like. Why she was arrested for assault? Protesters feel it's personal. I can't believe that this can go down in a black community and they think they're going to make money in the community and not respect the community. That's not acceptable. The salon says it was stiffed on the whole bill. She said she don't like eyebrows, so she don't want to pay anything. The owner claims the customer's friend came in and started the fight. That friend said this in an exclusive video to Pix11. Two acetone in my eyes. And they also cut me on both sides of my arms where my shoulders is. As for the accusation someone threw acetone, the owner says... No. Uh, maybe, just need a little bit. Protesters say they won't stop until the place is closed for good. I don't want anyone patronizing this place anymore. This will not smooth over. We are not done, but they are. Okay, so in uh, that audio, and you can go on YouTube, there are plenty of videos on it. You have plenty of African-American women, and in that video, you see uh, the Asians that were working in this nail salon. They were beating one of the, well, they were fighting, beating, beating one of the customers who happened to be a black woman. Um, and it's a majority black neighborhood. But the clientele are basically black women. All right. Next audio that we're going to go to um, is a black woman who's at a store. Well, I'll just play the audio and you go from there. You got slavery. slavery. You always slavery. I don't care about that. My my grandmother was in the hundred and four. Do you know how 
ancestors were slaves. I'm talking, I'm talking about in this country, they built this country, and we don't get no reparations. But y'all come over here. Hold on. McDonald's, uh -huh. okay, which is a very huge company. I know there was a slow, there was a, there was a small company, but they don't charge you for no water. You come over here, you get all kinds of tax breaks, but then you charge us for the water? Are you serious? We're the one that built the pipes under this Hold building, on. baby. Wait, wait, hold on. We, if we pay for, for it. Forefront? This is private. I don't, don't care. care. I don't care. Just I don't care. Love doesn't make you I right. I don't care. And no, it's not about being right. It's about what happened, what's the truth. My parents were born in Africa, but good job. We're African Americans. Thank you very much. If you want to Kenya and Uganda. Our parents were born in Africa. Okay, in Africa. Yes, Africa, not African American. What the hell does that mean? African American means that your ancestors were bought over here through the slave ship. It doesn't make sense. Yes, it does. No, it does. That's what it does. That's what it means. You're African soldiers. My dad, my dad is a Nigerian. Okay, for real. My dad's from Uganda. But my grandmother, my ancestry comes from slavery. My grandmother was here with slavery. What's this going to do with anything? Because y'all come over here and you create your own.
Should African American women get reparations? Welcome back, y'all, to the Real Elon. I'm doing this video because I think it's important when it comes to history. I think it's important that people are credited for what they did. And I don't like to see other people put in the forefront and the public is made to believe that, you know, certain people created something or came about something beforehand and not acknowledging the real person's who created something first. See, a lot of people believe Madam C.J. Walker, you know, was the first, for example, they, they try to say she was the first black female millionaire. Incorrect. They try to say she was the first one to bring about the, um, you know, the hair care for um, black people. Oh, FYI, I know the fuck black is not the correct term, but shit, okay? Um, anyway, but that's not true. So this is why I'm doing this video. So after my intro, then you're going to further look at a mini documentary about Annie Turnbow. Annie is the pioneer of the black hair care industry from back in the early 1900s. has been quietly kept. Why? I don't know. I can look more into Madam C.J. Walker because I really would love to know why is it Madam C.J. Walker was put in the forefront as if she created all this and she did. Now, mind you, I'm not taking away anything from Madam C.J. Walker because she did a lot as well. But I still believe in credit needs to be given where it's due. And this is with a lot of people. So many of us have learned about the great inventorial businesswoman and pioneer Madam C.J. Walker. We were taught many wonderful and honorable things about her, and she has earned much respect for her contributions to business, science, and vocational opportunities, as well as her economic and cultural contributions to her community and the legacy of her ancestors. Again, like I said, not taking nothing away from her because she did a hell of a lot. But quiet is kept. Madam C.J. Walker had a mentor and a teacher. Exactly, because I hope you do know people got to learn from somebody, right? She had a mentor and a teacher who remain obscure and lost in history for, for most of us until today. Annie Miniver Turnbow Pope Malone was born August 9, 1869, passed away May 10, 1957. Annie began developing safer and more effective hair care methods and treatments for women of color in the 1890s. In 1917, Annie Malone founded the first Portal College in St. Louis, Missouri. By the 1920s, she had built a financial empire valued at over $15 million. And this included dozens of Portal Colleges where she empowered people with personal development and training in the business of black cosmetology manufacturing, and public etiquette. She established over 100 beauty salons and supply stores nationwide. 
built manufacturing and distribution centers, and employed more than 10,000 door-to-door agents worldwide. Yes, worldwide, not just in this country, but worldwide. Madam C.J. Walker was one of those portal agents. Yes, Madam C.J. Walker worked for Annie Malone. Annie Malone mentored Madam C.J. Walker. Annie Malone taught Madam C.J. Walker what she knew about when it comes to the hair care. Okay? And, of course, Madam C.J. Walker went on to build on Miss Annie's shoulders. A beauty industry pioneer, <clears throat> Annie Malone, the social activist, donated vast amounts of wealth to social and educational institutions. Among the most noted was her $25,000 donation to Howard University. Because at that time, it was the largest gift ever donated to a historically black institution. So, please never forget her past. In 1922, Annie Malone made her first $10,000 contribution to the St. Louis Colored Orphans Home, where she served as president from 1919 to 1943. In 1946, it was renamed the Annie Malone Children's Home in honor of her. So now, let's get into this mini documentary. Comment below, did you know this? Or did you always think it was Madam C.J. Walker? Because I'm going to tell you something right now. Before there was a Madam C.J. Walker, there was Annie Malone. And she mentored Madam C.J. Walker. Not taking anything away from Madam C.J. Walker, but we damn sure need to remember who Annie Malone was. Because to be honest, if it wasn't for Annie Malone, it might be safe to say that it might not have been no Madam C.J. Walker. Marinate on that. Linda Jones. Annie Malone's story is such a fabulous story, and it's a shame that most historians have, don't, don't share her history with other people, and that's what we're going to do today. Annie Malone was an American businesswoman, inventor, and philanthropist. In the first three decades of the 20th century, she founded and developed a large and prominent enterprise centered on cosmetics or African-American women. 
She developed and manufactured her own line of non-damaging hair straighteners, special oils, and hair stimulant products for African American women. She named the new product Wonderful Hair Grower. Annie Malone discovered um, a product. She created a product called Wonderful Hair Grower. And with this product, she was able to improve the hair condition of many, many people. And she sold her products door to door. She moved from, a, from Metropolis to Lovejoy, Illinois. And she was there for a number of years, a couple of years. And then she moved to St. Louis, St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, the World's Fair was in St. Louis, Missouri, and she decided to go to St. Louis because she wanted to um, uh, increase her sales. In 1902, Malone moved to a thriving St. Louis, where she and three hired assistants sold her hair care products from door to door. As part of her marketing, she gave away free treatments to attract more customers. Most people are familiar with Madam C.J. Walker, well, did you know that Madam C.J. Walker was one of Annie Malone's employees? She actually, Madam Walker worked for Annie Malone. Toro is a West African word meaning physical and spiritual growth. Due to the growth in her business, in 1910, Turnbull moved to a larger facility on 3100 Pine Street. Malone, by then worth well over a million dollars, built a five-story multi-purpose facility in addition to a manufacturing plant. It contained facilities for a beauty college, which she named Poro College. Poro was the name of the college that Annie Malone started that she built. She built a college for black women, for cosmetologists, for black cosmetologists. And she, she wanted them to, to learn the trade, but she wanted them to give back to their communities by service. And in this college, which was located in St. Louis, this Polo College was so huge. It was a fabulous college. It was state of the art. It had... Uh, the dormitories for the students coming in. It had a hotel. It had a hotel attached to it, a dining facility. It had uh, a um, a rooftop garden. She had everything that she needed to to make her product, to actually uh, get her product from the raw raw materials until it was sent out to her customers. The building included a manufacturing plant a retail store where Poro products were sold, business offices, a 500-seat auditorium, dining and meeting rooms, a roof garden, dormitory, gymnasium, bakery, and chapel. Poro College employed nearly 2,000 people in St. Louis. Through its school and franchise businesses, the college created jobs for almost 75,000 women in North and South America, Africa, and the Philippines. I remember as a person, <laughs> it wasn't just about hair. It was about a lot of things that went on in there. I think about all the jobs. She had a sewing room where they made the uniforms for not only the employees, 
in the building, but they made the uniforms for the college students that when it, that came in to learn cosmetology. But she was kind of scary to me, yeah. and she wore a lot of those big hats, and they they, they would just really frighten me a lot. <laughs> she uh, actually was in every large uh, city in the United States. She had poll agents. She had 75,000 poll agents in every state in the United States, as well as international. She was in Haiti, uh, Dominican Republic, um, Nova Scotia, Africa, the Virgin Islands, South America, anywhere there were black people. Annie Malone had agents there. 75,000 is a large number. She was there and, and she also traveled to other, other countries promoting her, her, um, her business. Malone is recorded as the U.S.'s first black female millionaire based on reports of $14 million in assets held in 1920 from her beauty and cosmetics. Okay, Annie Malone, she's uh, what I consider uh, one of my Jim Crow millionaires because she made this, she amassed a $14 million, well, you just heard the white man say, the white man said it must be right. Uh, or true. Uh, she acquired uh, a master fourteen million dollar, and that's in that's not in nine, that's not in two thousand eighteen dollars. It's more if you if you put in an inflation cal- calculator. So she amassed a black woman during Jim Crow era with no government programs, no entitlement programs, none of that. She became an industrialist with. 75,000 people earning money. Black women, African American. There's some audio up. We might play one more audio. We're going to do that a little bit later. There's another audio. Um, we're not going to play it right now. Uh, of a black woman living today who took $1,500, actually $900, that she borrowed from her mother. And today, her company does $2.8 billion in revenue. Another African-American woman. We have four women uh, on our scrolling marquee. Mother Priscilla Baltimore, she was born a slave. She started a township called Freedom Village in Illinois. Now today it's called Brooklyn, Illinois. But she started out as a slave. There's another woman, uh, Queen Nanny, out of Jamaica. She started a town called Nanny Town in Jamaica, and she's the first woman, might be the only one, but she's the first woman, if not the only woman, in 2018 in the entire Western Hemisphere whose picture is on the currency of a country. That's Queen Nanny, who started out as a slave. So once again, going to my question, should African-American women get reparations? When you have examples of black women who were born into slavery and started townships, black women who started out in slavery and now have their face on the currency, the national currency of a country. Black women who went from slavery, like in Chica de Silva, this is in Brazil, to a very wealthy woman 
and a powerful woman politically. Black women like Annie Malone, who became a wealthy industrialist during Jim Crow era. Should black women get reparations? In each one of those examples is what I call the female solution to reparations because they didn't get not a penny from the government. They got it on their own. Let's go to our guest, 312 Naima Latif. She is the hostess, the executive producer of the Female Solution, which is heard on Blog Talk Radio, Monday through Friday. Naima, good morning. Yes, grand rising. Great morning to you. Well, let's start off with that question. Should African-American women be hearing some of these success stories? You know, I look at reparations and, and the things that have been proposed, and there there's two realities. One is that if you gave a dollar figure to each individual of African descent who had been abused, it would bankrupt the nation. We just would not physically, financially be able to do that. And the second thing, because people are not conscious of the power of their dollar and don't have a plan of action of strategically where to invest it, everybody who received money would still be broke a year later in the exact same position, no matter how much money they were paid. So I think rations need to come in the form of opportunities. And if you look at what is needed, we need more enterprises and we need more business opportunities. So I would say that reparations needs to come in the form of financing a business plan that someone is enabled to create so that they generate the revenue that would repair some of the problems of poverty among women and children. Women and children are the highest percentage of those who are living below the poverty line, and we all know the reason for that is the breakup of the family. So African-American women have suffered a great deal in having to leave their families and work outside the home while their children remain unsupervised and become the victims of predatory kinds of activities from unscrupulous adults. So if there's a way to empower women to be able to work from home or to develop businesses in their home or cottage industries, as they're they're called, and still be the nurturing available parent for their children, I think that would be the most helpful way to address the problem. You talk about opportunities. Uh, Annie Malone, who lived during the Jim Crow area time, uh, she's she created opportunities. So aren't opportunities always available? It just depends on the person's mindset. That is true. Your your life is a reflection of your thoughts, your beliefs about your abilities, your beliefs about your worthiness, and your beliefs about whether you have the capacity to achieve that which you say you desire. So 
if a person is stuck in a state of poverty, it's not because the opportunities are not there. It's because they don't believe they can benefit. And so they don't do the things necessary to make it happen. Right. Well, now, in 2018, for the, let's say for people that think they should get reparations, like I say, if people like Annie Malone, um, Mother Baltimore, uh, who create, you know, helped found a township, uh, there were former slaves who helped bankroll the um, – Actually, three successful back to Africa trips that started the nation of Sierra Leone, Liberia, and the Republic of Maryland, which is now called uh, Maryland County in Liberia. I mean, they did it during colonial times, like I say, all the way up to the present time, where you have um, a woman who started, she borrowed $900 from her mother and turned that into $2.8 billion. So what do you, I mean, what do you suggest people do to recognize opportunities that do exist and, and stop waiting for an outside force? Well, you know, there are, are things that affect our ability. But even then, whatever challenges you go through, they're for the purpose of helping you overcome that challenge. You have some people who grew up in a, in a, in a, a household with two parents, both working, or, or maybe the, the father working, the mother stayed at home, mom, and all of that, and they had food on the table every day and clothes to wear, and they still end up on drugs and in jail. So True. you also had people who may have been foster children going from home to home and, and instability or maybe uh, were – uh, abused or um, yeah, abandoned, and yet they became successful entrepreneurs. So it's always a matter of what is inside the person. And I think that if people are willing to put forth a plan of action, then they merit someone investing in that plan of action. But if you don't even plan, whether it's going to school or creating a product, if you don't even have a plan in mind, why should someone pay you? Because that shows that you really don't have an idea of where you're going to end up. So you'll probably end up wherever you are right now. So that's why I think that for people who really intend to change their situation, Whatever their environment is, whatever uh, challenges they're currently living under, they have a responsibility to plan to get out of it, not focus on what's wrong or who's in the way or what, what racial incidences are keeping them down, but where do I want to be, where do I want to see myself, and what am I willing to do to organize my time, my thoughts, my skills, and make it happen? And if they can put that on paper and visualize it, then it merits an investment because they're not only going to improve their lives, they're going to improve the lives of people around them. But, you know, the argument could always be made, well, you know, we've been how many generations out of slavery? Some people made it, some people didn't. Why should 
anybody still be paying for our enslavement? And that's a valid argument because over the generations, there are people who have managed to pull themselves up. It's like there are people who've managed to make a, a mess of their lives no matter how many opportunities they were given. So I think the, the more generations we get away from slavery, the more we have to take responsibility for our current condition. We can't keep saying, and we are, in fact, yes, we, we are going through the psychic trauma of slavery and the family destruction and all of that, but at some point, somebody has to look at, at the condition and analyze what happened and choose not to make the same bad decisions. You can choose not to develop an alcohol addiction. You can choose not to develop a drug addiction. You can, you can choose not to resort to criminal activities. Those are choices, even if your circumstances are bad. So what causes that? Well, you know, the breakdown of the family. If you know that the improvisation of women starts with a broken home, that means you make a decision to unite with a life partner that has the same understanding that this is a partnership and you're building something. And you may remain committed to that because to dismantle it will lead to both of you becoming impoverished and it will lead to your children lacking in the, the, the presence and the resources and the financial contribution of one or both parents. So, we can plan not to have this disaster in the next generation. And we're at the point now where we have to take responsibility of wherever we are. So, yes, investing in someone who has a plan to improve the condition of themselves and their family is a good thing, but someone who doesn't have a plan means they're not going to change things even if you gave them money. Okay, all right. Uh, today's podcast on This My House is titled The Female Solution to Reparations. Uh, we're going to play, like, this is under two minutes of audio, uh, in the words of, uh, this is a contemporary um, African-American woman, Janice Bryant uh, Harroyd. My business literally started with a fax machine, a phone, and my contacts. I started at the front of a rug shop. I wanted a really classy address, but I didn't have classy funding. So I borrowed $900 from my mom. That gave me about $1,500 to start my business with. My mom raised 11 kids, one mom, one dad. She taught us many of the principles of making lots from nothing. And the way she worked with us really taught me so much about not only how to build my business, but how to sustain and innovate across the platforms that I work in today. Personal life mantra is never compromise who you are personally to become who you wish to be professionally. I've had many opportunities over the growth of my business to make decisions that while they would not have been illegal, they would not have been constant with who I am and how I like to practice business. And they, candidly speaking, could have fueled the business a little faster financially. 
But I always had to go back to how I opened my doors. And I opened my doors with a commitment to myself. Hey there, thanks for checking out CNBC on YouTube. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on all of the day's big... Oops, that was Janice Bryant uh, Howard, I mean, yeah, Hal Royd. And uh, her company that she started uh, has a revenue of of $2.8 billion today. Might be $3 billion today because that set I got was like a year or two old. Um, Now, let me ask you this, Naima, um, because you mentioned the term psychic trauma. It doesn't sound like she has psychic trauma. And then... A lot of the former slaves, matter of fact, uh, Pianchi brought this up, and I, I brought a book to this effect. In South Carolina, um, where there were other states that had black slave owners, but in South Carolina specifically, there were former slaves who became slave owners themselves. State of South Carolina, many of those slave owners, matter of fact, depending on the year, as much as 80% of the slave black slave owners in the state of South Carolina, were black women. So, if you, because slave is really a, a legal description, the way I see it. So, how could a person that went from slave to slave owner have psychic trauma or? A person in 2018, Janice uh, uh, Janice uh, Howard, who does 2.8 billion dollars a year, how could they have psychic trauma? Well, you know, just a question. Uh, now, now say that again. Uh, say that one more time. No, I just said that's the question. All right, you know, put it this way. Here's the way I see it. I'm just one person out of seven days. All right. The sla- all right, slavery was basically, to a very high degree, a legal description of a person. You might be legally classified as a slave, but you ne- not necessarily would think like a slave. So you had a number of ex-slaves, legally speaking, who became slave masters. They had plantations, they had slaves, and basically a plantation is a business. They made a profit. So if anybody, I would say a person who was actually a slave, they might have psychic trauma. But in 2018, as in the case of Janice Brian Howard, I mean Howard, who does $2.8 billion a year, she wasn't born a slave. Her parents weren't slave. Her grandparents probably weren't slave. And she does $2.8 billion a year. So is it, I mean, how does psychic trauma fit into those examples? You know, again, it, it, at these times, what people are experiencing is either over the generations, they have been able to overcome the effects of enslavement, or over the generations, they have not. You have a number of families that uh, perhaps right after uh, 
emancipation. You know, they were able to gather together, buy land, start businesses, and pass down generational wealth. And you've talked about generational wealth when you're when you're when your parents own property and then they bequeath it to you. So you start out with property and a home and then you add to that. Maybe you get educated and buy more land and maybe expand the business and then you pass it on to your children and then they go to school and, and they expand the business or maybe even start another business and, pot and buy more land. So you had some families that that was the case. They were able to build on what those people who set that first foundation started. Then you have other families. Maybe somebody uh, was an alcoholic and wasn't around. Maybe they had babies uh, out of wedlock, never showed up. So then maybe the, the mother had to, to work in a field or maybe she had the, the alcohol problem and the children were abandoned and maybe they got into crime and somebody was in jail and then maybe the next generation the child was born to somebody that was in jail. So that person never learned how to be a, fa- a father. So, and then maybe, maybe their mother was on drugs and, and so their children grew up in foster care and passed back and forth. And then maybe they had a child out of wedlock at 16 and impoverished. And so, you know, you have generations of dysfunction. So at this point, you you really can't point to slavery as uh, at this time as the reason, even though that might have been the root of the dysfunction. It's just the the matter that family was never able to overcome it. Each generation was impacted by the people in the previous generation who never overcame their emotional trauma. So – if, if, if you have children who don't learn how to be parents, how to be responsible, how to make plans, how to organize their lives, and if they end up with substance abuse or make wrong decisions in terms of, of their sexual unions with somebody who is not committed to family or wealth building, then they're going to experience the consequences of those choices. So each person at this point in time is experiencing the consequences of their choices. Why do they make those choices? either because the people who raised them did not steer them in the right direction or they chose not to listen to the, to the advice of those who tried to steer them in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Either way, everybody at this point in this generation, what, five, six generations after emancipation or more, maybe, maybe seven or eight generations, depending on how, how you calculate a generation, you know, 15 or 20 years, whatever. But we have to take responsibility for where we are. And if we were born in a dysfunctional family, you can either or learn from it. But it's an opportunity either way, and we have to see it that way and not keep blaming people and not keep blaming racism. And I'm not saying racism doesn't exist, but you always have the power to change your condition no matter how you're treated by the people around you. And that's what people need to learn. Women have a difficult time. In a in a mostly patriarchal society, but every difficulty is you can what is it you can use it as a stumbling block or a stepping stone depends on how high you step. So the the women that have excelled made a decision to excel regardless of what their circumstances were. Women who fall by the wayside end up homeless. 
something in them did not make them believe they were worthy of success, so they made choices that proved whatever they already believed about themselves. And that's hard for some people to hear who might have spent a lifetime blaming people, blaming white folks, blaming their parents, blaming the the person who molested them as a child and left them emotionally distraught, whatever the case is. But Oprah was molested as a child. And look at where she is now. So someone abusing you does not have to be the reason why you remain emotionally crippled. And slavery which was abolished in 18, what, 65? Yeah, 1865. That can't, be the, that can't be the reason why we still can't get it together. We have to find people of like minds who want to change the condition and stop making excuses for the bad choices that we make in our own lives. And, you know, the frustration I heard in, in, a, in, a, in an audio you played earlier the woman that talked about, you know, other other groups, they have this and they have that. The frustration comes in when a solution requires united effort. It requires a group consciousness. And when you don't have people around you who understand how to pool money together, purchase land or invest in a business or buy products collectively so that they can establish something, it's frustrating because you can't do it by yourself. But at the same time, each individual makes a decision not to trust someone, not to cooperate, not to get involved in an organized effort. Each individual is making that choice to not do that. So the collective result is that everybody suffers because of the individuals who do not understand collective cooperative effort. So someone does understand that, rather than get frustrated at the other ethnic groups who got who have it together, who know how to come and pool their money and, and help this person get in business, and they pool their money, help the next person get in business. Everybody who comes here who does that, and they open up uh, subway shops or convenience stores or gas stations or whatever individuals or these ethnic groups are able to do in our neighborhood because we're not doing it. We can't get mad at them. It's not their fault. We have to repair what's broken inside of us. And if, if someone understands that this is what it takes to change a, a, a decrepit business district where there's boarded up uh, buildings and, and businesses have left, if you know that the way to resolve this is to gather with a group of families and pool your money and collectively buy the property and collectively invest in products and collectively work as a team to make it happen. If you know that, then you got to go where people are of like mind. You can't fix the people who are broken inside and blaming somebody because you can't fix what's, what's inside of them. You have to find people of like mind where you don't have to try to preach about it and convince them and fuss and, and, and everything because they can't see it. It's, it's inner vision that they're lacking, and it's nobody's fault. It's a growth that they have to go through. And if you're frustrated because people around you can't see it, go where people can see it. Because you can't make people who are blind see. If Mm. if other ethnic groups are able to take over our communities because they know how to come in and 10 families can each put up $1,000 and they can buy this, they can probably just been sitting there all that time, we can't get angry at them. We got to go and find 10 families and go and find nine other families who, who understand that process and are willing to do it. That's what we have to do. 
Boy, you broke that down. And, and I like the term you use, dysfunction. Because, um, well, name of functional, I mean, Adam and Eve was a dysfunctional family. So you're absolutely right. I, I agree with everything you said. I, I really like the way you broke that down. Uh, because some people, well, I guess as we ought to put it, we have these different life classes we take. So we're taking these different classes at different periods of time of our lives, and we always got some some type of dysfunction to work on. So I, I really like the way you, you broke all that down. Uh, today's podcast is titled uh, The Female Solution to Reparations. Uh, uh, one of our guests, uh, my primary guest is Naima Chief of the Female Solution. So, Naima, because we got a bunch of people that got their hands up on this one. Um, how did you come up with the podcast titled The Female Solution? Well, that that show actually is a takeoff from the book that I wrote entitled The Female Solution. And the book gained quite a bit of controversy because of a point that I raised about our families being destroyed and the fact that now we have an overabundance of female-headed households, and many of the men have been driven to a state of dysfunction either because of their lack of employment, lack of skills to develop businesses, and bad choices that land them in prison. So now you have this this imbalance in our community. And the suggestion that I made is that we look at the cultural lifestyle that evolves when you have a, 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 an imbalance of male and female population and legally enable men to marry more than one wife. And if you look at the animal kingdom where there is a, a, wherever there's an imbalance in male and female, they, they form family groups that, that address that imbalance so that all children are raised in a family. Females are, are able to have mates, and they're able to form communities that work. So in making that suggestion, of course, it was like opening a can of worms, and, and so many women are single or divorced because of anger over men who they say are involved with other women because we have this, this notion of, of a, a partnership and a marriage, meaning personal, private ownership of a person. Well, you can't own a person, but you can form a family, and a family uh, really is a, a partnership. It is a business unit. So if we understood that, then we would also understand the other structures that we talked about, families coming together to pool their resources. You've got to first understand collective action, cooperation. That's what a family is. So if you have in your mind that a person, you own a person, and, 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 and they got sexually involved with somebody else, so now you're mad, so you leave them, so then you break up your family, sense does that make? So now you've broken the family unit. You've broken the ties that would enable you to combine your assets and build wealth. And lacking that understanding means that you you put your children in a vulnerable position where now they don't have the the strength and the protection of that extended family nor the combined wealth that comes from an extended family so when they uh, strike out to to try to get ahead they've got to compete against all these people who have the resources and the connections that they don't have 
So we are impoverization. We are creating the impoverization of a people by our lack of understanding of family as women. And so the show kind of evolved into our seeking to address the issues that are created by a lack of understanding of cooperation and rebuilding the family, rebuilding the community, and healing ourselves, the trauma that comes from years of neglect, abuse, and and mistreatment by individuals and by a system that creates the, the poverty and the violence. So the show, uh, the takeoff of the book, and that the, the book examines family structures and the philosophy behind it so that we can see that our responsibility as women is to rebuild that broken family and everything else will fall into place after that. And then when can we, I know when they're here, but for new people tuning in, uh, when can we tune in to the female solution? Well, we're on oh, seven can. days a week. Uh, Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 9 a.m., Saturday, 12 noon to 2 p.m., and Sunday, 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Time. And they can go to www.blogtalkradio.com slash the-female-solution. Or they can call in at 51. Of course, if you want to comment, you have to call by phone. And there are those who also can connect with Skype. So uh, if you're outside of the country, you can call in by your Skype number. And, again, that call in number is 515-605-9325. And just press 1 when you're ready to speak, and that will light up your number on our switchboard. Great. I frequently – I listen practically almost every day. Matter of fact, this particular podcast – uh, I heard something either yesterday or the day before that basically inspired this podcast. So oh, uh, my views are kind of extreme, but uh, to the far right, because if I was king of the country, which I'm not, I throw everybody off the government assistance. Um, however, the female solution. Uh, you, you're absolutely right. There is dysfunction, and we 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 all have to meet it on our own terms and our own time. So, it's you can't hurt everybody into the same thing. Let's uh, we got quite a few calls here. Let's go to 407. And the question that I uh, originally asked is: um, Should African American females get reparations? And if you missed the beginning of the show, we Annie Malone was a black woman in the gestures during the Jim Crow area time. Um, there's um, a golf course. Matter of fact, um, Bill Overton. I forgot that guy's last name. The only black golf course are uh, Clearview, which is in Ohio. Uh, a lot of times, it's it, it's, it's given to uh, credits given to the husband of that, but the wife, Marcella. Um, they bought a dairy farm and turned it into a golf course, which still exists today. So some of the audios we played earlier uh, were from, you know, highly successful black women uh, due to the amount of calls on this program. We're going to skip the rest of those audios. But uh, on our scrolling marquee on blog talk, I think there are about four slaves, um, that went from slave to wealthy women. 
and this is going for, as far back to colonial days. So, but Naomi, you're absolutely right. It, some people, you know, grow out of dysfunction at a different rate uh, than others. So it, it, you can't really blanket people for that. Uh, let's see. Our next caller we'll take at 407. 407, the question is, should African-American women get reparations? Well, this is Viada with the Female Solution and Soul Purpose Healing. So I would just say uh, ditto to what my sister Naima Latif has just said. And I just wanted to give an example of how women uh, can make a difference, not with getting handouts from the government, but helping other women. I, I saw a post where uh, a woman opened a sewing center uh, to help women who had been uh, sexually abused or prostitutes. I can't remember, but they were sexual uh, victims. And she opened a sewing center for these women to create clothing. And uh, it was just a beautiful um, journey that these women went on from being victims to being productive and creating clothes. So I think we as women, if we can help those women who are less uh, able to help themselves, that's part of the reparation is that we hope bring, we uh, pull up the other women who don't, are not able to help themselves. I'd give the mic to any other women who might have something to say. I, I like the way you put that down. Matter of fact, this, we're going to play a quick audio uh, about Marva Collins uh, before we go back to our, our live mic. Uh, and we've had Marva, Marva's no longer here on its plane of existence, but we've had her son on, one of her sons, on Patrick. He's uh, been on here about maybe three or four times. So and LA, we're gonna I, play this. Gonna be, yeah. I hope you're playing Aretha Franklin's Respect because she passed on today. She's one of the, the most popular women of our day in music has passed on Aretha Franklin. So I thought maybe you're going to have some respect in there. <laughs> no, no, I'll, I'll get it. I'll get it queued up. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> 16 years ago, we broadcast a story about Marva Collins, a Chicago teacher who started her own elementary school on the city's west side, West Side Prep. Marva claimed that with love, hard work, and no-nonsense teaching, inner-city children could compete with anyone academically. It was, to many people, quite an inspiring story. But not to Charles Murray, author of the controversial book about race and intelligence called The Bell Curve. On page 399, Murray writes that Marva's celebrated anecdotes about her students are too good to be true, that there is no hard evidence of her success. We decided to check it out. Before we begin, let's go back to where we began 16 years ago. You have it all here on West Adams Street, all the familiar big city blight. The forever broken windows, the burnt out flats, the disemboweled abandoned cars. And then you have 3819 West Adams. The Canterbury Tales are about whom? They're about whom? How many, how many were there? There are no frills at West Side. The emphasis is on basic education, with an even stronger emphasis on literature and composition. There are no teacher breaks, no teacher desks. 
She is on her feet and over their shoulders all day, pushing them, cajoling them, and praising them. Very, very good, Lisa. Very, very good. Cum laude. And the results are apparent even to a casual bystander. Alert and challenged children being pushed way beyond the boundaries most school systems set. Who's your favorite author? Jeffrey Chaucer and Shakespeare. Booker T. Washington and Hans Christian Andersen. My favorite book is The Greek Myth. Greek Myth. I like Yordor Dostoevsky and uh, Dante Alighieri and Shakespeare. And your favorite book? Divine Comedy. <laughs> I like Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau, and I like Charlotte Bronte, Jane Eyre. So what happened to those 34 students we met at Westside Prep? Charles Murray says by implication that their apparent intelligence and promise was a fraud, that what we saw was just too good to be true. What was it? We traced 33 of the 34 and flew a group of them back to Chicago, back to Westside Prep's new location for a reunion of sorts. To see if Charles Murray's allegations in the bell curve are true. To see whether or not these young men and women lived up to Marva's claim. Christopher Stubblefield. We learned to read hard work. The eight-year-old with a big voice is now at university in Texas. And Erica McCoy-Pace graduated last spring from Norfolk State University. When you saw her last, she was listing her favorite authors. Emerson. Henry Day with the role. And what about the rest of our class of 79? Michael Anderson, Taylor. Terry Holmes, own operator of transportation company. Latanya Singleton, preschool teacher. James Lowe, staff sergeant, United States Air Force. Sabrina, sixth grade teacher. Russell Winters, law student. Louis Johnson, operations manager. Xavier Jones, teacher, criminal justice mission. Craig Brunner, clerk for the state's attorney's office. I remember. I have said in front of all my classmates here that I want to become an attorney. And it's funny, I, 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 I'm actually in law school and I graduate next year and the college told me, oh yes, you can do it. You can do whatever you want to do. It's possible. And I'm living proof it is possible. A number of you are teachers. Were you inspired by her to become teachers? Definitely. She just gave so much to me personally in terms of um, always being reassuring. I mean, just the small things, like she would grab my face and say, pretty girl. <laughs> yeah, honey, you're brilliant. That's right. Especially Craig. She would take his head and raise it up. Speak up, honey, you're brilliant. And, you know, after someone telling you that every day, five days a week, for three or four years, you know, that's in you. That becomes a part of you. You are brilliant, honey. And then we were like doing Shakespeare. We put on the plays, and we had to play with But Charles Murray stated that claims of long-term academic achievement would typically fade as these children grow up. Investigations means what? Means you're very what? Right. The words that we learned, it was nice because when we left and we heard someone talking, using a word, we knew what that word meant. And now in school, a lot of times we get the reading list on the course outline. I've read most of the books on there. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, I've read that, I've read that, or the teacher will be talking about something. And I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 I read that book. Fourth All grade. the students may feel like this. And Jather, where's Xavier? Right here. You use your, your notes? Your, your Westside prep notes on Hamlet to yeah. write a paper when? Um, 
I used it in high school, and I also used it in English Lit class when I was in college. <laughs> and uh, looking back at my handwriting, I was like, wow, you know, I was like, these are good notes. <laughs> Murray also raised questions about Marva's claims that five and ten-year-olds who'd been labeled unteachable were capable of reading Chaucer and Shakespeare. Well, Michael Anderson was said to have a learning disability when he entered Marva's school at age nine. I had a client just a couple months ago brought up Shakespeare out of nowhere. And we sat after having coffee for three hours. You know, well, what did you learn Shakespeare? Fourth grade. <laughs> I knocked him off his feet. He couldn't believe it. Fourth grade. And there is Erica, who is considered a hopeless case at age six. Basically, I was told that I was borderline retarded, that I would never read. So I was basically written off. I was supposed to be put back a couple of grades, but I, I wasn't when I came to Miss Collins. When we saw Craig Berner in 1979, he was reading his essay about Cleopatra. Very, very long ago, there was a queen called... What was the secret of her success or motivation or what? The confidence, how you have a brain, you can do it on your own. You don't have to wait for anybody. She... She killed herself with a poisonous snake. Very, very true. I say to every child, for example, Morley, Morley, there's no one with your eyes. There's no one with your nose. There's no one with your hair. That makes you really special. These days, her message and methods are repeated by teachers she's trained for her three elementary schools in Chicago. She is mostly on the road, giving seminars for teachers all over the country. Above all, she tells them every child is teachable. Every child can learn. Ask the slowest children in your class how many children know the rap song, and they all raise their hands, and I'll say, say them for me. And I says, good. If you can do that, you can learn the Canterbury Tales in Old English, too. <laughs> I don't know half of what those rap songs are saying, but they know every line. What makes us think, then, that they become such learning disabilities when they get to school. But Charles Murray...
uh, Asian guy out of Central America and some white folks out of uh, Africa. They're, they're American. They've taken the Marvel Collins model, and they've given credit to Marvel Collins. Uh, but they're going corporate. They'll probably make a billion dollars. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I was thinking about Marva Collins in terms of respect. What she did was develop self-respect in hundreds of people, children and people just right. by living her truth. She developed the self-respect, which I think is missing in our communities today. So, yeah, we can go back and look at her journey and say, wow, all those students that she touched are now uh, uh, admiring and respecting themselves first, and then they're going out and doing great things. Okay, well, I'll be looking forward to uh, listening to the Female Solution on Friday to your, I guess, thoughts or wellness report on Aretha Franklin. Uh, Let's go to our next caller, 346, uh, area code... Your mic is open. Three, four, six. Good morning, LA. How are you this morning? Oh, good morning. How are you doing? All right. Good morning to Naima and Viana. Good morning. Good morning. morning. All right. First of all, acknowledgement to Aretha Franklin, and she is hands down, no doubt, was the queen of soul, and she will definitely be missed. Uh, in terms to your question for today's show, uh, kind of like you, as you say, extreme. Um, I, 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 on one end of the pendulum, I'm glad you pointed out the, the history facts concerning the African American women who made uh, substantial gains in the economic and financial world. Uh, but on the other end of the pendulum, you know, this is something I wish I could actually wave a magic wand and we quit looking for reparations and see where we're going, look at, look at the past as a history lesson, and see where we're going in the future and go from there. Um, because mm-hmm. history tends to repeat itself, and we're at another crossroads, and we don't even really, really realize that we're at, the, at these crossroads because they try to use racism as a reason why the black community is torn out. But if you go back before the civil rights, most children were, were born into somewhere between 75 to 80% of Children were born into two-parent homes, and right now today it's completely the opposite. You have 75 to 80 percent of children are born to single mothers. So it, it's not a fact of racism; it's a fact of politics, uh, money, and finances, and economics, and us not understanding how those things work. And we're at the same situation now. Trump in office, and what a lot of people are not understanding: this thing is far bigger than Trump. This is really not. Uh, the Republican and Democrat are things that are used behind it, but this is more so about globalism versus nationalism. And so you have the leftist on the other side who wants to make everything equal and everything uh, <laughs> pretty much being ran by the government on a global scale, and you have those nationalists who believe in country first. And so this is what's really going on, and what we don't realize as the country of the United States of America, even with all of these problems, all of the things that we've enjoyed as the, as the United States of America, if we don't wake up and really find out what's going on, we're going to lose it. We're going to lose all of it. And we're going to be back at a point of slavery again. So we have to understand what's going on. We have to understand economics. We have to understand politics. We have to understand finance. It is definitely not racist. That's my comment. I agree with you. 
Matter of fact, I would even throw law in there because what's interesting, particularly when you go back to the the blacks who became highly successful, including the the, the successful back to Africa trips during colonial times, um, Mm -hmm. they might not have been lawyers, but they Mm -hmm. knew, okay, legally I can't be free here, but I'm going to have to go to another geographical location to do it. So some a lot of did it a lot did it through the underground railroad, which you know involved some kind of risk. Others uh, found out about what they call manumissions, where you can self-emancipate yourself. Uh, and like I say, the the, the trip to Sierra Leone, um, uh, Liberia, uh, the Republic of Maryland, uh, those were black people that basically uh, self emancipated themselves through manumissions. Uh you had I think yesterday or the day before we did uh no the day yeah the day before we did a, a podcast on slave entrepreneurs. Um so you did have quite a few black folk who were legally described as slaves, but they were entrepreneurs so after they got finished with master's work and they were on their own time, they had their own business going. And um, some of them got wealthy that way. So um, I well, think there's a lot of solutions. We, we need a history lesson. We do. And even, even in, in the people's law study group, what I've tried to teach people time and time again as it relates to what's, what's going on and what has happened, um, the country, even the United States, it was split. That's why you had the reason why it was split, the reason why you had some tree states and you had slave states is because when they started this thing called the United States, they on decision from the beginning. So they, the United States Corporation, as we know it, they inherited the slave problem. They didn't start the slave problem. They inherited it when they took over. And so when you understand it and then you realize that it took them 89 years from the time that the United States of America was started to abolish slavery. To me, I think that's commendable. And I'm not saying slavery didn't have its atrocities and it didn't have things that, you know, was detestable. But when you have a whole, when you have a whole country, and you have a country that's split on it, and for them to do that within 89 years, and not to mention that people died in a civil war, both black and white, for the abolishment of slavery, then we ought to understand that it's more to it than about black and white. You know, I'm glad you brought up that fact that the United States even today isn't that old. So like you said, when they went between the time 1776 and the time they abolished slavery uh, and what was then officially the United States, that that's not a whole lot. That's not a long period of time, 89 years. And what people must realize, the entire Western Hemisphere, okay, what it looked like to people on the other side of the pond, including Africans. Here was a whole, I mean, you got the whole Western Hemisphere where it was a free-for-all. You didn't need currency, I mean, government-issued yeah. currency, because there was no government. There was right. no police. You can basically do what you want to do. Now, some people went crazy with it, you know, but then again, it's all relative to what? We call it crazy yeah. now. But there were several people, they were into what we would call pedophilia. There was no laws on the books for that then. 
since you can kill somebody, there was no laws on the books then. Now, in England, there were laws on the books. There were court systems. But in the entire Western Hemisphere, it was a free fall. So you can get wealthy to your wildest dreams of, you know, how much work you want to put, put into it. So human traffic, even Africans, you had Africans in Africa that owned more slaves than people in the entire Western Hemisphere. They were in the human relations business. I would say there's things like people. And they would give an order. We need this type of person. We need that. And they got Mm -hmm. the people over here that can build infrastructures. Basically, a lot of your African traders were, the way they looked at it, we might look at, they, they weren't looking at them as slaves. They were, in, they were like Kelly's of the day, of this day. We're in the human relations business, and let me take your order. That's the way they looked at it. We look at it differently because we have laws on the books now. But they didn't have any laws on the books then. And even today, there are pockets around the globe where human trafficking AKA slavery legal. Warren. Yeah, I, what I what I what I what I wish that we as a people, black people, would understand is that if you search human history, there's not a race of people on this planet who haven't walked under the flag of slavery at one time or another. Uh, and it just seems like we're the people that just can't get past it or get over it, or we can focus on, you know. Uh, Thriving and becoming uh, whole and successful and healthy and wealthy, we we tend, we we stay stuck in the past, and we need to get past these things. Nobody's oppressing. All, all the most of the stuff that I hear, as we did as it, as it relates to racism and this and that, is coming from our own people. It's not coming from white folks. That's that's true. Matter of fact, even today, <laughs> well, they're not slaves, but. I can, you can, yeah, depending on the situation, you can call some of them. It's, it's an individual's case by case basis. You can call old pairs. You know, we take we take a situation and we put a French name on it, and then it's okay all of a sudden. But um, it, it, anyway, that well, that's a whole different podcast. This is our next caller, Aaron Code three fourteen. The mic is open. Well, hello, gang. How's everybody? Fine, fine. Is that brother, brother <laughs> Yeah, Warren, that's me. How you doing, my friend? I'm good, brother. I'm <laughs> to get you back to St. Louis so we can hit you back at their restaurant, man. They're wondering where you are. They said that the <laughs> kitchen staff never worked that hard in a long time. So <laughs> <laughs> but... Oh, uh, <laughs> It's a good question you have uh, today, uh, L.A. Should black women receive reparation? And I can answer that in two ways. Okay. If there's a move out there that's giving people money, well, they're going to get it. And oh, I'm out. against telling people. I'm against telling people oh, how to pay money. Here. Morning, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, can I you hear me, Warren? I can hear you. Phone. I don't think L.A. can hear you. Yeah. L.A., get your phone together. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. You got it? All right. Now I can hear you. Yeah. yeah. Like I said, if there's a move out there, a political move to give 
women, black women, and we know this is really stretching what we call money for reparation. Then I'm I don't have anything against that. Uh, I can't tell people how to spend their money. They do whatever they want to once they have it in their hand. What little they have now, what amount they have now, you don't tell them what to do. But I would like to see a ULA on that question. Let's contact some of these females that's on the Black Enterprise Top 100 business, like Sheila Johnson, who has 2,100 uh, employees, or uh, Act One Group, which is headed by Janice Bryant, who has 1,800 employees. She does about $2.8 billion worth of business a year. Uh, let's ask, th- ask them, what would you need in the form of reparation? And we really want to be fair about it. Let's ask a well, brother. But, but aren't they already getting it? They started companies that are $2 billion companies, $3 billion. There are, the way I'm looking at it, they saw opportunities, and they, they didn't wait on the government. No, I don't think that they receive any reparations because I can think of a lot of ways that those companies could be utilized in order to expand in what they have, but it would take individuals to do it. And they may need rep- they may want some form of perks that you could call reparations. See, I don't look at reparations as being money. I look at reparations okay. as being uh perks that give you trade advantages, perks that give you status, emphasis status when you start moving into other areas. You know, an infant business is given all sorts of perks that allow for it to get a good foothold. So that could be a reparation for me. Or you remember I told you once before that if I was to do a manufacturing business over in a West African country, well, I would want just that location to come under the auspices of the Food and Drug Administration, not throughout the whole country because that's literally impossible. So if I'm doing a food operation that's processing and packaging food that I want to import into the United States, the Food and Drug Administration would come give me that A stamp on that location, saying that everything is sanitary, it meets all these requirements, that any food substance that's coming back into you. That's where I think that it should be. That's where I would want to have reparations. Just do my building. If the rest of the country ain't there, I don't know what to tell you. But uh, well, then you can do that. You can do that through lobbyists, which people do already. Well, it's a little bit different when you're trying to do it with lobbies. But uh, it would be the same thing. It, uh, your congressperson could sit down with president, and that's how you get to the to the president. You direct you yourself to go sit down with Donald Trump. You're supposed to have a congressperson that's supposed to uh, make that arrangement or deliver your message to him and hopefully come back with what it is that you need. Uh, the well, go well, ahead. A lot of people that, a lot, mm-hmm. many people that want reparations, I feel like you. Reparations just doesn't have to be in one form coming from the government, uh, it's like in a trip. But many people that do have this discussion on reparations, they're waiting for whatever form they're looking for it in. They're looking for it to come from the government on mm-hmm. some type of moral. But they're waiting on white folks to be moral about it and give it, which I think will never happen. But that's where I think a lot of people get stuck. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you was talking earlier about the – now, you know who has a very good educational model – 
I can understand, and you know me, I'd rather direct my money toward those uh, those students that's doing the right thing, working hard, but still need help. But it's all right for others to direct their efforts at the other end, like teaching people that's in the sixth grade how to read and so on and so on and so on. Uh, <clears throat> you look at the Onion Palmer School out there in South Central L.A., a Marcus Garden Academy. That is a high achieving school. I never seen kids uh, in a classroom, and I went out to that school back in the nineties, maybe ninety six, ninety seven, somewhere around there. I sat in every classroom and videotaped what was going on. We didn't have CDs at the time. Sheila didn't have DVDs, so I was using VHS uh, for the medium. But uh, that is an excellent school. Not taking anything from any others, but that is one of the highest performing schools I ever seen. And one other thing too, you mentioned about uh, Annie Malone. There's a book mm-hmm. called "A Friend to All Mankind." A friend to all mankind. It's about her, and this woman was very, very awesome. If you want an example of a strong black woman, if we can use that terminology. She was one. The things that she'd done, the 75,000 Poro, Poro was the name of her company, the 75,000 agents around the world that she taught that helped change their economic conditions. This woman was something else. She taught, she mentored Madam C.J. Walker. And the problems she had here in St. Louis then it led her to go, I believe, to Chicago or maybe Detroit. And it was on after that. The woman was a dynamite. And nobody knows anything about her. Now, as far as kids, what I like for, 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 for well, this is what I had my grandson reading. And all the other stuff about black history, that was known by him early on. By the time he hit the fifth grade, he knew that. Matter of fact, when he went to high school, I wouldn't allow him to take any further African-American history classes because he knew it already. But he read Stake and Acclaim, which was about Jake Simmons, the creation of an oil dynasty in Texas. Very few people know about Jake Simmons. Then I heard some books that you've mentioned before, like Fortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid, uh, the, the Mysteries of Capitalism. Bad Samaritan. That's a very good book. Economic Politics of Race by uh, Thomas Sowell. Many black activists don't like Thomas Sowell. I love Thomas Sowell because the things that he makes is not the victimology. He talks about people like uh, the ones that go out there and do the things that uh, they should be doing or should I say that are doing the things already. Walter Williams, yes. Pardon me? No, no, I was just saying Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams. Yeah, I, I like both of those. Oh, yeah. Walter Williams is a good uh, individ- individual, too. Matter of fact, uh, Walter Williams is the one that's got the uh, radio show, right? Yeah. Uh, Warren. He introduced yeah, yeah. me to uh, the brother that committed suicide, unfortunately. Uh, what's the brother's name that's doing uh, Golden Crust? L.A. I can't think of his name. Go the Haitian guy. I can't yeah, I can't, can't think, think of his name, but 
Yeah, but he committed suicide. I really hated to see that. But the, his business, read his his business. His book is called The Baker's Son, and uh, that's a very good book. And we have well, a lot of people. H.R. Uh, Russell down there in Atlanta, he wrote a good book too. He's one of the largest construction companies in that area. Him and Mooney. Uh, up there in Chicago, you got some Nigerians that started a, a general contracting business that's getting prepared for the Obama Library and other things, and they named the company. It's called Ujama. So it's a lot of blacks that's out there doing. I have read a, I have written a book yet, by the way, y'all. So don't go looking for it on Amazon. But uh, <laughs> we waiting for it. I just ordered the uh, that book that you recommended about uh, Annie Malone. Um, That's a good so book. Thank you for that. It's not in Kindle, but it'll, it'll come through the mail. Matter of fact, speaking yeah. of books, uh, Naima, uh, tell us about your books and how can we get get a hold of them? Uh, well, you can go to my website right. at, mm-hmm. at www.naimalatif.com. That's www.naimah. L-A-T-I-F dot com and just go to the books page and you can order your copy of the book Slavery, the African American Psychic Trauma uh, the book The Female Solution the book When Nations Gather and that was written by my husband of course I did uh, the editing and so forth and so we've co-written that and then the book Visits from the Dream State those four books you can Get on my website. We're also currently producing audio books. We're in production of the audio books for each of those publications. And so look out for that as well. Those will be available on my website. Also, you can order them from Amazon.com. But if you order them from my website, you will get an autographed copy. And again, that website is www.naimalatif.com. That's www.naimahlatif.com. If you Google my name, usually the book Psychic Trauma will come up. That has been widely used in a lot of colleges that have been either as a sociology or a history book looking at the what they are now calling post-traumatic slave syndrome but certainly uh, PTSD, uh, the the post-traumatic stress that people experience as a result of warfare, they recognize that many of the symptoms are available or or are present, present day African-Americans, even though we are generations after slavery. A lot of things you mentioned, L.A., that that people are going through, they do have their roots in slavery, the, the perpetual poverty the extreme low self-esteem, the fear, you know, a lot of these things that are very crippling, uh, they they still continue to plague us because of the undercurrent of racism that exists in our society. And, you know, traveling abroad really helped me get a perspective on how deeply ingrained the racial injustice culture here is in America. I just recently came back from London, as many of you know, and, London, you know, it, it not always it mirrors American society because America is kind of based on Great Britain and all of that. But because that tends to be a much more international population, a lot more integration, uh, you see people who are black, but they're always black and something else. You know, they may have a father who's Nigerian and a mother who's German or a father who's Ethiopian and a you know mother who's 
um, Brazilian or, or French or, you know, just so many different combinations of people who have migrated and intermarried. So it's not possible in, in that environment to be as succinct in, in delineating people according to a racial identity. So on, on a census form where everybody here is either a black or white, and or, or other, you know, and then people who got to check the other box, they got to, what am I and how do I explain this combination? Well, that's, I see that that society is almost impossible to categorize people like that because everybody is something else. And and I think that's part okay. of the sickness in America, the extreme focus on racial identity when over time you're going to have the influence of many different cultures, many different nationalities, many different experiences. And this is why the, the, the further away from uh, the 1800s we get, the more impossible it gets to actually pinpoint who even should receive reparations, even if we talk about it, because how many other mixtures of, of people and cultures and languages do you have in your family? And then, of course, there's the, the, the Native American reality. Most of us have Native American roots somewhere in our background simply because the Africans who came here even before the enslavement intermarried with the Native American people. And and many of them got enslaved after their families had been free in America for generations. So it's just it's almost an impossible situation. You know, you can't say, well, I'm black, therefore I should get money. Really, we, we just can't do it. As much as, yes, it was immoral what happened, but it's really – not even legally possible to pinpoint who should get paid because their ancestors ancestors were enslaved because at this point your ancestors also were not enslaved. You also got some ancestors who came here or known free will from some other country, and you also got ancestors who were already here who were Native American, and you also have ancestors who might be first or second generation African who weren't part of that enslavement process at all. Just like Barack Obama, okay, he's African American, but his African part was not a part of the slave history. So how do you, you know, how do you, how do you designate who deserves to get paid and who doesn't? So I hey Naima, uh, hey hey Chunky, let me give voice. you another dynamic because yes. we talk about the notorious thing. Look at the notorious things that you had going on with the tribal fighting. I'll give you an example. My wife Away, her tribe was always being uh, beat up and killed and robbed and so on by the Ashanti mm-hmm. and her yeah. tribe and the God combined together and fought them off, captured some of these Ashanti. If they couldn't make recompense, they were sold to traders and they ended up here. Well, as far as her tribe is concerned, yeah. as far as her tribe is concerned, there's still a debt that's owed by the ancestors of the one that ended up here, which would be some black Americans. So some black Americans owe reparations to those tribal groups that's there in West Africa for what their ancestors done to them over there on the continent. Nobody looks at things well, that, like that. that. Well, that that's, that's a big question. And, you know, that raises another big question, L.A. You, when we talk about who are you, this person that you, you are inside this body that genetically comes from a number of people who did things that are wrong to other people. Are you, the soul inside this body that you are currently wearing, responsible for the people who 
genetically produce the material of the body that you are now wearing. Is that really fair? Because you are a separate soul yourself. You are not responsible for their actions. So should you pay a debt because your body is made up of genetic material of people passed down to you who did bad things to other people? And is that really morally right? And if if that's the case, if it's not really morally right for us to take responsibility for what other people did simply because our bodies are made up of genetic material from them, can we really hold current present-day white people responsible for anything that happened during the slave history? Because they are not personally the souls who did that. I I agree with you 100%, and you're talking very logical, but as you well know, probably more than I do, because you got a bigger audience than me, and then on Facebook, YouTube, and what's surprising me is you have a lot of young people, I mean, 20s, that I, I, I mean, they're up there crying like they they just got beat or got their foot cut off. They, I mean, they really got into it. I don't know who they've been talking to over the years. <laughs> but, but you're right. As a matter of fact, there's a clip of uh, one of on Oprah's shows where there were two black women, and there was a white guy. His family was in the slavery business some kind of way. Or oh, profited mm. slaves some kind of way, and he went on there. I don't know why he did to apologize for what his family did. I don't get that. Yeah, well, hey, because, maybe I'm, well, probably because well, probably because he's still living off the wealth of what they did. So you do have to look at that. If you're still benefiting financially from wealth passed down to you from people that your people sold, well, then you are kind of responsible because you are benefiting. And then that's another thing to look at, family inheritance. You have a lot of Africans who are wealthy because their people sold people. So we can't even look at it as a black and white but, issue. But How many I, people have present-day wealth because no, you their bring up a good, sold You people? bring up a good point, Naima. But now let's go to Warren Houston on this one before we run out of time. Just like when Prince died, there were probably over 300 people that filed claim against him that didn't even know Prince from the Man in the Moon. So it, <laughs> yeah. I mean, when it comes to reparations, let's say somebody wants to sue uh, Standard Oil or whoever, uh, or it could come up on a black person because you did have black slave owners. So, I mean, yeah. legally speaking, that could be crazy. Warren, your comments on that. That's why you got to have a trust set up, I guess. What was that, No, I mean, for people that, uh, you know, that are still, their generational wealth, their, their families are still profiting from, like the Dole family, uh, you know, with the pineapple, orange juices, and all that other stuff. Um, yeah, some families that are still profiting from slavery, monetarily speaking. So are they obligated or did you set up a family first and hide your assets so somebody won't try to sue you for reparations because of what your family I, I did two, three hundred years ago. I, I don't think so. I think I think the world is a complex place. And if you will go back and try to sue these families, you'd have to have some serious money because you know, this is one of the things that people don't understand why the government is not paying reparations because the government wasn't responsible for slavery. Uh, it was private corporations and private individuals. Uh, slavery was just the law of the land, but the government themselves never owned any slaves. 
So to try to go through all of that trouble, I think that energy could be better put somewhere else uh, instead of trying to dig up stuff that's two or 300 years old. Oh. Here's another. Yeah, you're right. Here's another thing. If a person, let's say, wanted to sue somebody for reparations, first thing, your first task is to find a reparations attorney. Good luck on that one. Number two, <laughs> you need to find somebody who's a reparations investigator. Good luck on that one, too. And both of those cost a whole lot of money. Happen to find those two professionals. Um, but anyway, well, that is it for today. We're, we're going to thank everybody for calling in, listening um, on this podcast for It's My House. We're going to end it on one since the Queen of Soul has transitioned to another form of energy. We're going to end it with her singing respect. <laughs> 